Well, take your Bible this morning and open it to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, as we continue in our exposition of John's gospel, we do that week in and week out, and certainly we come uh, to one of the most memorable acts of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of the Bible. It's hard to calibrate that because all of them were wonderful, all of them had its own meaning and purpose, but we come to John chapter 13 where he washes the disciples' feet. And then later in chapter 13, he will issue a new commandment that believers in 1334 and 35 are to love one another. Let me read the account. You follow along in your Bible. Uh, John chapter 13, verse 1, I will begin. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his, hand, into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God, rose from supper He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not Every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. What a text that's before us. I mean, we all know this account. Or I should say, at least maybe we think we do. I mean, certainly the washing of the disciples' feet is one of the most memorable acts of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does Jesus mean in verse 10 when he says the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean and you are clean but not all of you. What does that mean? I mean this is a profound text here in John 13. Now, as we launch into it, let me just set a little bit of the bigger picture for you in this foot-washing passage, which runs actually all the way down to verse 20. There's two issues in it. First, the foot-washing reveals the example of humble service. Humble service. I think you're familiar with that. Glance down in John 3. It says in verse 14, if you, if I then, your Lord and teacher, 314, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example, verse 15, that you should do just as I have done to you. And so there's no question, I would say, number one, that he, he did that as an example for us, as an example for you, as an example for me. This we are familiar with. Certainly this we know. But secondly, not only was it an act of humble service, the foot washing was also to be seen as a symbolic act of spiritual cleansing that we're going to see this morning in verses 8 through 10. In fact, it's the meaning behind the foot washing that maybe sometimes we can often miss altogether. So what I'd like to do with you in these two consecutive weeks is, first, I want to look at the spiritual meaning of the foot washing in 3, 1 through 11, and certainly there's a physical act of that foot washing, but he's pushing the text of John 3, 1 through 11 to that spiritual meaning, and then next week, we'll look at John 3, 12 through 20, and we'll look at the example of the model and the model that he laid down for us. So let's look at this foot washing through a sequence, let me just put it this way, of three events that lead to one clear truth, at least in this opening text. Three events that lead to one clear truth. I want to talk with you first about the scene that he reveals. In other words, he's going to set the scene for us and reveal that to us. Secondly, the service rendered. The service rendered is where he's going to wash the feet. And then thirdly, I want to look at the symbolic reality with you. The symbolic reality. Okay, so the scene revealed, the service rendered, the symbolic reality. Let's dive into the text and look at these truths here before us. Look, the first scene is the scene revealed. Look at verse 1. Look at it with me again. It says, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John is just setting up the scene for us. I remind you, just as we walk into this text, sometimes you see this as an isolated event. It is Thursday night of the Passover week. This is his Passion Week that we call it. It is the Thursday night prior to the Passover on Friday, but it is Thursday night. So understand as we just walk into this text, our Lord Jesus Christ is about 15 to 18 hours before the cross. So they remember he came in at the beginning of the week, they hailed him as king, and by Friday they will be shouting for his crucifixion. So here John tells us it's before the feast of the Passover. It's Thursday night. Passover, of course, would celebrate their deliverance from Egypt. We believe firmly that the Lord Jesus Christ would be killed right at that time when they were offering those Passover lambs. And so here's the scene. It's Thursday night. It's Passion Week. It's the night of the Passover. We call this section that we're moving into here, in here, from John 13 to 17, the Upper Room Discourse. It is a, a magisterial place in the scripture. It is called the Farewell Discourse, the Upper Room Discourse. 
Now, you'll note there in the text, as the scene is set for us, he knew that his hour had come. As we've studied through John, you saw that before, his hour repeatedly in 2-4, 7-30, 8-20 had not come. But now, as we move into John 13 and even John 12, he knew that his hour had come. It's the time of his crucifixion. It is the time where he would be glorified through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension. And so he says there that his hour had come. If you back up into John chapter 12, do you remember in verse 27, Jesus said there, and actually back to 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so whereas before it had not come, it's here. Verse 27, now is my soul troubled in 1227. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? He said, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. It would be the hour, look again at 13.1, where Jesus would depart out of this world to his Father, having loved his own who were in the world. And so we know from other scriptures, having loved the world, now his love is demonstrated specifically towards his own. It's a very important text there in verse 13, 13, 1, having loved his own. In other words, he's loved the ones that he saved. He's loved the ones that have been called out by God. You'll notice in the text a very tender statement in 13, 1. It says he loved them to the end. It's a precious statement. He, he loved the disciples and by extension us with a perfect love. He, he loved them with the extremest form of love that one could ever describe. In other words, he's saying, I have loved them to the fullest extent. I have loved them, in essence, with perfection. To the fullest measure that I can love them, I have loved them to the very end. And some people think, and maybe rightfully so, it's to the very end of his life. It could be that, certainly. But I think bound up in that statement is more that I've loved him with the most perfect love that I ever could display. He loved him to the very end. He was the good shepherd who loved his sheep even enough to die for them. Now, as you grab that statement then, this love's going to be displayed then in 13 through 17. Specifically, it's going to be displayed in this foot washing service. In other words, beloved, this is how love acts, okay? That's the thought. He loved us to the very end, but here is a demonstration of how love acts. This is what love does. This is love, if you will, put on display. And so here's that scene. You remember in the other Gospels, he sent the disciples out to prepare the Passover. Remember the other Gospels, he sent them out to get to the room. They're in that room. They're in that upper room. The hour had arrived. Look at verse 2. Look at the scene. He's just revealing the scene. During supper, John says, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Doesn't it just heighten this scene a little bit? He's in that room. I presume it's just the disciples gathered around that table. His hour had come. 
And yet he's in the room with one of his very own apostles who would betray him to his enemies. He is an instrument of the devil. Certainly Judas, and we'll look at this in the weeks to come in John 13, he bears the responsibility for what he had done to the Savior. But you'll note the language there. It says that the devil put it into the heart of Judas. Literally, in the language, he threw it into the heart of Judas. You say, why is that placed there in the text? I think it's placed there in the text because in utter contrast to Judas, appalling action is set right next to that wicked betrayal is the humble service of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here he throws it into his heart. He bears the weight of that. You say, well, how did Christ respond to Judas himself knowing that? Look at the text in verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. Stop there just for a moment. Even though the hour had come, Jesus knew it was the Father's commission. He knew that the Father had given him authority. It says there is the rightful heir of all things. He knew that despite the suffering that he would face, he said, I know where I have come from and I know where I'm going. I know that I've been sent by the Father. I know that I'm returning to the Father. I mean, you might just for a moment have expected that with such of the Lord Jesus Christ, intimate knowledge that an all-out cosmic war would have taken place between the Lord Jesus Christ and Judas. I mean, you'd think that. In, in humanness, you would think that. You would think that if he would have known that, and he certainly did know it because it's stated right there in verse 2, during the supper, the devil had put it into his heart, verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had done all things. And he said back in chapter 6, he said, I know that one of you will betray me. You think he would have decimated him there. You think he would have exposed that. But instead of releasing his power, and instead of releasing his judgment, because Jesus is the judge, he does something stunning. Look at it in verse 4. It says there that he rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. I take you from the scene revealed, secondly, to the service rendered. Now, John puts this in the language here, not in the past tense, but he puts it in the, in the tense that you would see it being displayed before you even now. They're at this meal. Judas is around that table. They're all reclining. He rose. Picture that. He laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Now you know in just a moment he's going to wash their feet. The conditions in Israel, if you've been there, make foot washing a necessity. I don't have to say that. It was dusty. The roads were dirty. 
People wore sandals in those days. They're not wearing boots. They're not wearing socks. They are getting dirty. They're moving about the day. They're moving about in Palestine. They're moving about in Jerusalem. And even though they had been clean maybe earlier that day, they are getting dirty. And so foot washing became a very prominent place in this nation. Now, you'll note there in the text, just a little point to you, it says that he rose, and it says that he laid aside, it says his outer garments, and you'll just note that it's plural there, and I don't want to make too much of it. It could be that it was a single garment, but it's stated in the language to be plural, and I think because it is in the plural, we ought to take it seriously. John uses other times where he's talking about a garment and the gospel, and he uses it in a singular effect just to speak of an outer garment. But here, it says that he laid aside his garments. And if you can picture this, they're at the Last Supper. He rises, if you will, and he takes off his garments, meaning this, that he probably just stripped down to a loincloth. In other words, he takes it all off except for small covering loincloth. He takes and dons the clothing of a slave. I mean, they must have been stunned. The Bible doesn't say that anything was spoken right there. Then he takes a towel, and the towel that he takes here is a long towel. And usually it would be fastened to the shoulder, which would allow Jesus then to gird it around his waist... And then from the waist, it would usually fall down almost to the feet. It's an incredible picture here. Then we see, look at verse 5 of 13. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He takes the garb of a slave. He takes off, if you will, his dignity. He empties himself and becomes a slave. What a picture this must have been. Doubtless the disciples would have been happy to wash his feet, but to wash one another's feet and even to have him wash their feet, that was something in this culture only a lowly servant would do. In fact, there's writings in history that some Jews insisted that even Jewish slaves should not be required to wash the feet of another. That was reserved, beloved, for Gentiles. It was reserved for slaves, if you will. It was reserved in some cases for women and children, but not each other. And here they're at this table reclining, 15, 18 hours before his death, and they see him rise. They see him take off his garments. They see him wrap himself with a long towel. They see him pour the water into, it says, the basin, and he begins to wash their feet. If you could just picture it this way, the disciples, maybe you've seen pictures this way, are reclining, they're not sitting in a chair, they're reclining at a, on a mat, and they're around a very low table. 
So picture me, if you will, reclining. And usually in those days, if the pulpit wasn't here, they would lean on their left arm, okay? Their feet would be away from the table. There would be a U-shaped table, if you will. It was a low standing table, maybe down this way. They would lean down on their left arm, use their right arm, if you will, to grab the food that was on the table. Their legs would be extended away from the table. So here's what the Bible's saying is that Jesus rises from his mat, takes off his outer clothes, wraps this towel around his waist. He's adopting the service of a lowly Gentile slave. And he washes the disciples' feet. Here was an utter act of selfless service to a bunch of men who were so full of pride. You say pride? Oh, pride. You say, well, Scott, I I didn't read this here. How, How do you know they were prideful? Well, it's super clear. In Luke 22, at this very meal... At this very meal, in Luke 22, it says a dispute arose as as to which of them was to be regarded as the what? The greatest. Did you know that that's right here at this meal? Jesus rises. God in the flesh strips down, puts on this towel, if you will, And they're having a conversation at some point in this meal. Who is the greatest amongst themselves? It's unbelievable. God in the flesh, stooping, this is how you have to see it, to wash these men's feet. The second person of the Trinity, the sinless one, the creator of the world, the eternal word, stops to wash the feet of his disciples who are discussing which one of them is the greatest. Are you kidding me? I mean, the disciples, they're just dumbfounded. They're at least silent because nothing is being said. And let me just put this in right now. He must have washed Judas's feet which is frightening because he already knew that it was in his heart. Jesus knows all things. But they're silent except when he came to Peter. Look at verse 6 of the text. So he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, read it this way, do you wash my feet. You is what we would say in the language emphatic. You wash my feet. Peter was saying, seriously, Lord. I mean, this to Peter is almost an inner revulsion. And this is Peter, is it not in the Gospels, Grace Church? Impulsive, impetuous, Peter, sticking his foot in his mouth, always at the wrong time, 
Do you remember when Jesus said, I'm going to the cross, and he said, may it never be, Lord. And Jesus had to say to him, get behind me, what? Satan. But imagine this scene. You have the Lord of glory washing Peter's dirty feet. He is stunned, to say the least. He couldn't believe it. And so he challenges Jesus Christ. How would you wash my feet? So Jesus answered him. Look, verse 7. He responded. And he said, what? I think just calmly. I am doing. You do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. In other words, he couldn't see beyond the physical act. There's something behind this cleansing. One day he would. So what does it mean one day? Well, I think that just means after the resurrection, after the ascension, after certainly the outpouring of the Spirit of God. But you know what? Peter still couldn't get it. You'd think if the Lord said that to you, you might say, okay, Lord, I trust you. But not Peter. Look at verse 8. He said to him there, he said in verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. He keeps going even after verse 7. And here, Peter states what we call a double negative. I mean, you can just read it kindly and say, you shall never wash my feet. But that's not really the meaning of it. He says, you will never, no, never wash my feet. Stop is the thought. We call it just a double negative. You'll never, never, no, never, that's triple, but wash my feet. And so he just, in essence, I want you to stop. You're not doing this. But have you ever noticed what the Lord said? Look look at verse 8. Here on this service rendered, Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I mean, and that is a strong word there. You have no relationship with me. You have no fellowship with me. You have no communion with me. And so here's the scene revealed, the service rendered. Let me move into this symbolic reality. Symbolic reality, or we could call it metaphoric Reality. In other words, there's something deeper here than just the physical foot washing. If I don't wash your feet, Peter, you have no relationship with me. It is a very, very intimate word Jesus is using. And, and of course, I think Peter got it, and so he has a hilarious response. Look at verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, oh, in that sense, Lord... Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. You say, what's he doing there? I think he's just back in hyperbole again. He's overzealous again. In other words, okay, if that's the case, then I want you to douse me. I want you to put it on my feet. I want you to put it on my head. I want you to put it on my hands. I mean, this is just Peter. He walks on water while the other 11 are sitting in the boat 
Then he begins to see the, the waves all around him and he sinks and he has to say, Lord, save me. In another place, he says, thou art the son of the living God. And in the next phrase, Jesus has to say, get behind me, what? Satan. I mean, this is the same guy who says in John 13, I will die with you, to later in John in the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't even know the man. This is Peter. You can't wash my feet, but Lord, if that's the case, then wash my head, wash my hands, douse all of me. It's an interesting thought here. Well, what did Jesus mean then? Back to that statement in verse 8, when he said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You have no part of me. Well, he's talking about the need here, is he not? Track with me. To be spiritually cleansed. Okay? He's using a metaphor. He's using a symbol here. He's washing the disciples' feet. There's no doubt he physically did it. But there's something even behind that. There's a symbolic reality. He said, well, what does he mean? I think Jesus explains what he means. Look at verse 10. He said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, it says, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And he says, you are clean. Look at it again. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. He says, you are clean. The wash here has a double meaning. Obviously, as I mentioned, it refers to a literal washing. He was washing Peter's and the disciples' feet, but there's more. And this is, we've seen this in the gospel. There's a spiritual meaning there. You say, well, Jesus then is not only speaking about the physical act of cleansing, washing of the feet. He's speaking of the spiritual act of cleansing. This has been all through John. You say, well, Scott, what do you mean? Do you remember when he said that a man must be born, what? Again. He must be born from above. You can be born physically, but to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be spiritually reborn. So he used that phrase. Do you remember when he was drawing water for the woman at the well in John chapter 4? He was glad to draw her physical water, but he prayed that she might have her eyes open that she may come to the living water that wells up in eternal life. So Jesus, throughout John's gospel, is using these physical metaphors, turning them into a spiritual truth. Of course, this morning, I would think that you had something to eat. But in John chapter 6, he said of himself that I am the bread of, what, life. In other words, there's bread, but there's spiritual bread as you appropriate Christ. There's birth, but there's spiritual rebirth. There's water, but Jesus is the one who gives living water. So the washing here, watch this, is a metaphor for spiritual cleansing. Okay, it, it, It's also an example, you come next week, but it's a metaphor for spiritual cleansing. In other words, this foot washing service foreshadows the cross. It's pushing to the cross. In other words, at the cross, the Lord cleanses his loved ones from their sin. So what Jesus, in essence, is saying, unless 
I wash your sins away by my atoning death on the cross. You have no relationship with me. In other words, Peter, it's not that this is optional. If you don't appropriate my death, my cross, and hear this foot washing ceremony that symbolizes as a metaphor that spiritual cleansing, then you have no part with me. In fact, let me show you a text. Look over in 1 John. In 1 John. This is how other writers use the language. Watch this there. It says in 1 John 1, 7, you remember when we exposited from that, he says, does the same writer, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And here's what it says in 1.7. And the blood of Jesus, his son, what does it do? Cleanses us from all sin. Now certainly, that's a spiritual metaphor. It, his blood, his death on the cross cleanses us from our sin through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no forgiveness apart from his death. Calvin said, in the sight of God, we are all filthy until Christ washes away our stains. That's just the picture. It's a symbolic reality. Let me say it this way, Grace Church of the Valley, to you. When you came to a saving relationship with Christ, you were spiritually washed. You were spiritually cleansed. It is in his death, he washes away all of your sin through faith in Christ. He wipes it out. He takes it away. It talks about being like snow in the book of Isaiah, that Christ cleanses us from our sins. So look back now in John. I want you to see how this can come alive. He who is bathed, if you will, in 1310, he who is cleansed by the blood of Christ, theologically I could say he who is justified is completely clean, is completely clean. In fact, you say, well, Scott, what do you mean by that? Let me show you two huge texts to show you this ideal of cleansing and salvation for the forgiveness of our sins. Would you look in your Bible at 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians, I'm trusting that this will aid you to see this symbolic reality. It is a powerful text. I turn you there. I think it comes up on the screen, but it's only partial. So look over in your Bible at 1 Corinthians 6, 9. It's a powerful text. There it says, it says, or do you not know, 6, 9, super clear, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, the unrighteous, no matter what they profess, aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. You say, what's he talking about? Look, do not be deceived. He says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, 
nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will, it says there, inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what you profess if those are the things that you're practicing. And so Paul tells the Corinthian church, don't be deceived. If you're living in that kind of sin, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But I draw your eyes to this in verse 11. Look at the opening phrase. And such were what? Some of you. That's not your lifestyle now. If it is your lifestyle right now, I'm just going to tell you, you need to repent. I don't need to yell this. I don't need to get overtly strong. But if you're claiming to be Christ and you fill out that description, then you're not going to heaven. And that troubles my soul. Troubles my soul. But the text is saying here in verse 11, and such were, what, some of you. It's in the past tense. In other words, you used to be like that. You used to live like the Gentiles. You used to just live in the passions of your flesh. You used to live by yourself for your flesh, indulging in the flesh, exposing the flesh, doing whatever you want with whomever you want, whenever you want, and you used to be like that. Such were some of you. But look again at verse 10. But you were what? Washed. What do you mean washed? You were cleansed by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You used to live this way, but now he uses that metaphor again. You were washed, and I just want you to understand here, and I'll bring this back. It's past tense. You used to live that way, but you no longer live that way. Some, you were that, but now you've been washed, you've been cleansed. Look at verse, look at verse 11. You were sanctified. You say, Scott, how, how do you... It's sanctified past tense. Yes, it's past tense. And I think I've already covered that with you some year back or so. We always talk about sanctification being practical. What you're doing now, and that would be true. You were saved. You are being sanctified. You're in process until you get to heaven. But the truth is, in the scripture, there's two pieces of sanctification. One of them is a practical sanctification, and another one is a positional sanctification of how God the Father sees us, how God the Father sees you if you've been cleansed from your sins, and if you've been redeemed, is you've been washed, you've been sanctified. Look at verse 11. He says, you were, what, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, Scott, what do you mean there by justified in the name of the Lord. In other words, you were declared righteous. You were declared righteous. When you came to saving faith in Christ, you were washed. You were saved. You were sanctified. You were justified. God the Father, if you will, took the gavel in his courtroom and he pounded it down and he said, redeemed, justified. You are now righteous in my sight, not based on what we have done, but based on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ lived out. And you remember we've talked about that great exchange. The Puritans called it the alien righteousness. We 
sang this morning about righteousness. It's a righteousness that you need that you don't have. It's an alien righteousness. It comes from the outside. In other words, when God declares you righteous, he removes, number one, negatively all your sin. And secondly, he puts into your account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When he removes all your sin, beloved, he takes them all away, past present, and even future sins. And he puts into your account the righteous life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is just saying, hey, you used to live like that, but such were some of you. But you've been washed. You say, well, Scott, what do you do with people? What do you do with my family members who claim Christ? Well, listen, I don't need to say anything. Paul said there, you read it, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He wants to tell you, Grace Church of the Valley, don't be what? Deceived. Don't be deceived. If people are living in open flagrant sin and continue in it, even though they came to Christ, they may not be truly his. And so here, your salvation, your justification is complete when you come to Christ. I'm going to come back to this. Stay with me. In other words, it's an instantaneous event, right? We've always said that. Sanctification is a process to become more holy. Justification isn't. Justification is instantaneous. It's complete at that time. So when I was 14 and I dropped to my knees, I recognized my sin, I cried out to the Savior, God Almighty in the courtroom of heaven, pounded, if you will, his gavel and said, completely forgiven. I got up off my knees and I was justified. I was saved. I was washed. I was sanctified positionally right there. So here's this text on 1 Corinthians 6, 9 that says you were washed and it's put in the past tense. Can I show you another one? Look over just for a moment in Titus and then we're going to bring this back. In Titus has a wonderful section there when he's talking about our glorious salvation and he talks about what we used to be then what we now are. But Titus 3.3, for we ourselves in 3.3 were once looking back foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But watch this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, here's the phrase. He saved us, again, past tense, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, and here's the phrase, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. There you have that phrase again, the washing of regeneration. Look back now to John 13, and let me tie this up for us. Look back at the text. It's, in other words, when you're forgiven, you are completely clean. Look at 13.10. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, he says, except for his feet. I mean, just come back to the physical analogy. 
If you took a bath this morning and you walked on the roads in Jerusalem, your feet got dirty. You don't need to wash all of your body. You just need to wash your feet is the thought here. But if you transform that into the symbolic reality here, if you've been bathed, you don't need to wash. In other words, if you've come to Christ, though you might not believe it this morning, you are completely clean. In fact, look at the text in 13.10. The one who does not, who has bathed, does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely, what? Clean. And he says to Peter, and you are, what? Clean. I mean, what that must have been to Peter, I'd like to ask him in heaven. He's just always putting his foot in his mouth. Puts his foot in the mouth here again. And lest Peter doubt for the rest of his life, Jesus says to him in the conversation, you are clean. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ saying that to you? All of us struggle at times with the assurance of our salvation. And here's Jesus by his own authority telling Peter, you are clean. In fact, would you just glance for a moment at John 15? It's not the only place that he tells the disciples that. He says in 15:2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. It says there that it may bear more fruit. He says in 15.3, already you are, what? Clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. In other words, he's just saying there that when you come to Christ, you are completely cleansed from your sin. You say, okay, Scott, then what do you do? Go back to John thirteen ten, when he says, except for the feet. I think he's just given us an expression in New Testament theology there that we still need to daily confess our sins to the Lord, right? We don't need a whole bath again. We've already been forgiven. We've already been saved. We've already been sanctified. We've already been justified. But we do need, at times, as we walk in this Christian life, our feet to be cleansed from our daily sin. But you don't need to come forward again, whatever we would think, sign on the dotted line, get rebaptized again. No, listen, you're cleansed. But when he says, except for the feet, I just take that to be an expression of the daily confession of sin that you and I must hold to. Would you go over to 1 John just for a second again? Let me just show this to you. 1 John, I think he brings both of these truths together. Do you remember when I read earlier in 1 John 1, 7, where he says there that we have fellowship with one another, and he says in 1, 7, and the blood of Jesus, his son, I love that statement, cleanses us from what? All sin. In other words, when you become a believer, he completely cleansed you. You say, but Scott, what do I do do with this sin, though, that I have in my Christian life? Look at John 1, 8, 1 John. He said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we, remember this one, confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love that. So in other words, the believer has both been washed and has been cleansed. But when you sin and when I sin in my daily life and in your daily life, you need to confess your sin. And I think that's what Jesus says, you're clean except for your feet. In other words, you're, you're clean as a whole. Peter, you're already clean. You just need to have a foot washing. But I also think the foot washing was pushing forward to the cross. Do you remember, beloved, when David sinned with Bathsheba? And do you remember his prayer of confession? This is true confession. True repentance True repentance apologizes. True repentance is broken. True repentance describes the offense that's done. And true repentance not only gets, I would say, horizontal, but it gets vertical. In other words, you're coming to people and you're saying, this is what I've done. But enough for me to say with David, you probably know it by heart in 51.2. Do you remember the language he used after he sinned? He said, wash me thoroughly from my, what? Iniquity. He's using that language. You say, well, Scott, he was already forgiven. He was. But he's saying in light of this sin, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And he said, and cleanse me from my sin. I think we understand the distinction. You're redeemed. He forgave all your sins, but we live in a relationship with Jesus Christ that takes daily confession, if you will. To confess just means to agree with God about our sin. And so, beloved, when God cleanses us, he bathes us. Our salvation with Christ is settled. However, our communion with Christ depends on the confession of our sin. And so in that sense, we need to have our feet washed, is the text. But he's not quite done. Would you look back there in John 13? It's amazing. John had to get this in. Jesus says to Peter in 13.10, and you are clean. Interesting. But not every one of you. Say, why? Because he knew that Judas was about to betray him. He knew in John 6, 70 and 71 that one of the 12 would be one who would betray him. He knows that not all are clean. You say, well, Scott, what do you mean he's not clean? Judas isn't saved. He's not cleaned. He's not cleansed. In fact, he goes out and commits the wicked crime just in a few hours where they would come and take him away. But he's not cleansed, which is frightening. You can be around the things of God. You can bring around the Messiah for three years. And here he was, greedy for gain. And so Jesus just wants to make it real clear there. Not every one of you. Look at verse 11. He said, for he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. I mean, GCV, it's hard to conceive of a more powerful demonstration to love one, one's enemies in all of the scripture than to realize Christ washed the feet of Judas. To look him in the eye, to know that he had lifted up his heel against him. 
to partake of the Passover and eat that Passover meal knowing that Judas had betrayed him. So, beloved, here it is. Three events, at least in this text, leading to one truth. There's a scene revealed. There's a service rendered. There's a symbolic reality. The foot washing foreshadows the cross and the act of cleansing, okay? And so that just leaves me with this. There's just two questions for you as I close. Two questions in this text. Number one, have you been cleansed from your sin as you sit here this morning? And I mean in the total way. Would Jesus Christ say to you, you are clean? Not clean in your own works, not clean in your own deeds, but clean because the very one who washed the feet died on the cross. Have you been saved? Have you been washed? Have you been sanctified? Have you been justified? Has he, if you will, symbolically and metaphorically, washed all your sins away? That's number one. And, And I just, I would compel you If you've not been washed, then you will die in your sins and stand before the judge. I think this is even an act of grace by the Lord Jesus Christ to Judas. So have you been cleansed from your sin? And maybe just secondly, secondly, I would say this. Do you need to confess any sin right now? That's the question. When he says, except for the feet, have you gotten dirty this week? Have you got soiled this week in thought, in act, in deed, in word, in speech, with the eye, whatever it may be, then would it be that you would confess your sin, that you'd say, would David wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin? The believer is in constant motion both ways. On the one hand, we're rejoicing in what he's done, and we say amen for justifying us and forgiving all of our sin. And yet the believer is also in motion this way, that as we walk in this sin-filled world, our feet are getting dirty, and we're getting stained. And to cleanse ourselves from that, we need to agree with God about that sin. You say, well, Scott, what will happen if I don't agree with God about my sin? Well, you'll remain unforgiven. Out the door will go all of your joy. All of your joy. When I kept silent, David said about my sin, my body wasted away. So listen, I just compel you to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ today. But those two questions, have you been cleansed from your sin? And do you need to confess any known sin this morning? I pray that you wouldn't.